from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 6th. Today, the dangers of an overheating economy and a look at the rights of transgender teens in conservative states. So, Rachel, I remember talking to you a few weeks ago and just catching up and asking you what you were working on. And you said that you were working on this big story about how economists are very afraid that the economy is going to bounce back too well. Like, economically, the country might be on too good of a path. And that, to me, sounded completely absurd. (laughs) It's a really hard concept to wrap all of our heads around. That's Rachel Siegel, economics reporter for The Post. You know, it's sort of is like too much of a good thing, which is a hard concept to grasp considering how bad the economy was a year ago and frankly how bad things still are for so many people. We're still about eight and a half million jobs down from where we were in February of 2020. But at the same time, as we were talking about, there's this simultaneous conversation about whether the economy is going to bounce back with so much force that there could be some consequences that come along with that. So what is the thinking behind those consequences? Like, how could it be bad if the economy bounces back very well? The way I try to think about it is that you want the economy to rebound in a way that the economy can absorb, that a sort of slingshot too far in either direction is never a good thing. So we think about how sharp and sudden and painful the recession was when the pandemic shut down virtually the entire economy. And we don't really want an equivalent, you know, surge in the other direction. But why not? Get a (laughs) bunch of people employed very quickly, get back to life as we knew it a little more than a year ago. I mean, that doesn't sound bad to me. It doesn't sound bad in the sense that we want people to get back to work. We all want to return to normal life. It's just that there are consequences that often have to do with the way goods are priced and the way supply chains are set up that can get a little complicated when that rebound happens very quickly. So maybe it would help for you to explain a little bit like what it actually means for the economy to bounce back when all of this is over. So there are a couple of factors that I think about that all contribute to this momentum in the economic recovery. So first, vaccines. Vaccines are what are going to help people get back into their jobs. And we're seeing a big ramp up in the number of people who are just able to get shots in their arms every day. So that's one part. The second part is a lot of pent-up demand. So for wealthier Americans in particular, they've saved a lot of money over the past year. They haven't spent money on vacations or concert tickets or eating out at expensive restaurants. And a lot of people are eyeing a summer of big spending where they're going to be able to do all of those things. And that kind of spending, in turn, brings back jobs that haven't come back to the labor market. So think about jobs at hotels and theater venues and airport kiosks that are going to ride this wave, too. 
The third part is the COVID stimulus package that President Biden signed in March. That was a $1.9 trillion bill that is going to add sort of this huge push of momentum to those things that I just mentioned. People are going to be spending their $1,400 stimulus checks. There's relief going to small businesses. So all of these things are sort of coming together at a time when economists are saying, okay, this is really going to sort of push the recovery with a lot of force that we haven't seen over the past year. So maybe paint a picture for me of what those consequences could actually look like in in real terms. So when we talk about the economy overheating, we tend to be talking about inflation. Okay, so what is inflation? It's basically how much the prices of goods and services change every year. And there are concerns that if the economy heats up too quickly, and it's too much for the economy to absorb, that that can throw a lot of things out of whack. You don't want supply chains to not be able to pick up to meet a really sudden surge in demand. You want employers to be able to find workers. So let me give two types of examples that illustrate these price dynamics. One is groceries. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a pretty strong increase in how much groceries cost. And there are a lot of reasons, but in some ways it boiled down to this sort of mismatch between supply and demand. You had a lot of people who couldn't go to restaurants anymore suddenly buying everything that they needed from grocery stores when supply chains couldn't catch up. So that caused the prices of groceries to go up. That was the whole flour thing, right? Like all of a sudden flour because <laughs> everyone was baking and there was a huge run on, on flour at the grocery store. Exactly. Everyone was baking. People wanted flour and eggs. People wanted toilet paper. People wanted cleaning products. This was this sort of mismatch in what you would go to the grocery store to find. And a similar example that could happen as we emerge from the pandemic is, say, a lot of people are rushing to book airline tickets that could cause airline ticket prices to pop. Or what if a lot of people are rushing to buy Airbnbs that could cause Airbnb prices to pop? So you've got this push in demand before the supply can fully catch up. And eventually it'll normalize, but that sort of initial mismatch could drive prices up for a little while. Interesting. But so the fear is that even for normal people, that after this is all over and six months from now, when we're looking around trying to spend our money, all of a sudden things that we would normally buy for a certain price are way more expensive. And that could be a problem for us. Yeah. So there are there are economists who have been trying to raise that alarm and raise it very loudly. So Larry Summers, who was a prominent economist and economic advisor in the Obama administration, has been one of the leading voices saying that particularly the, the thrust of President Biden's COVID package would lead to the kind of inflation that we haven't seen for decades. And that goes back to the scars and the, the sort of fears of 1970s and 1980s type inflation that was completely impossible to ignore in daily life. Good evening. I'm speaking to you tonight to give you a report on the state of our nation's economy. I regret to say that we're in the worst economic mess since the Great Depression. In the 1970s and early 1980s, inflation was a scourge on American life. Now, we've just had two years of back-to-back double-digit inflation. 13.3% in 1979, 12.4% last year. It was normal for prices on everything from 
cookies to coal to rise 10% or more every year. And at the time, Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker famously responded by hoisting interest rates and triggering a very painful recession, but ultimately breaking inflation's back. There's also a real danger that we have um, overheating in places that lead to unwanted inflation, and I think the data is increasingly pointing in that direction. Republican members of Congress have been very worried about a sudden rise in inflation later this year and are also worried about additional spending from Congress that they say could make this problem even worse. But it won't change inflation going forward because inflation expectations are strongly anchored around 2%. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, for example, are not worried about long-term persistent inflation over the entire economy. You know, I think the price of doing too little is um, much higher than the price of doing something big. For example, Secretary Yellen said in a CNBC interview a couple of weeks ago that inflation had been very low for over a decade and that they see, you know, the the potential for some risk, but that it's a risk that the Federal Reserve and others have the tools to address if need be. We think that the benefits will far outweigh the costs in the longer run. Even if it does cause sustained higher inflation, possible overheating of the economy? Well, inflation has been very low for over a decade. And, um, you know, it's a risk, but it's a risk that the Federal Reserve and others have tools to address. The greater risk is of scarring of people having this pandemic take a permanent lifelong toll on their lives and livelihoods. They say, sure, there there are probably going to be some temporary increases in prices for some of the things that we mentioned that will have this supply and demand mismatch. But they say that that is different from persistent, sustained inflation over the entire economy. Why do you think this argument matters? Like, what is at stake when it comes to how different economists and officials in the government view the potential risks or consequences of the economy getting better? The inflation debate matters because economists have long been guided by this relationship between inflation and the labor market. The thinking being that the lower unemployment falls or the more people who are able to get into jobs, that that will push prices upwards. But that relationship never really panned out in the economic expansion that came after the financial crisis all the way up until the pandemic. So when I say, you know, why does it matter that the Federal Reserve, for example, isn't as worried about inflation? The sort of implicit part of that message is that more people will be able to get back into jobs before the Federal Reserve decides to pump the brakes and worry about inflation. It will allow the labor market to get bigger, maybe even to levels beyond what we saw right before the pandemic, before the Fed has to pump the brakes by raising interest rates. It also affects policy beyond the Federal Reserve. It affects the size of President Biden's COVID package that was signed in March. It affects these other major policy pushes like the infrastructure package that we saw unveiled last week. 
it's all under the umbrella of how much the economy can grow and how much the economy can absorb. And I've learned as an economics reporter that that touches just about every aspect of all of our lives. Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter for The Post. This story was produced by me. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. A new law in Arkansas will prohibit doctors from providing gender-affirming hormone treatment or surgery to transgender minors. The law was passed by Arkansas's state legislature on Tuesday, overruling an earlier veto by Governor Asa Hutchinson. But while they are a minority, they deserve the guiding hand of their parents and of the healthcare professionals that their family has chosen. This ban is the first law of its kind to be passed in the U.S., but it probably will not be the last. Similar bills are being considered in more than a dozen states across the country. So I wanted to understand what is that like when you're you're that kid who is is worried about potentially losing your medication and what is it like to be those parents who in Missouri if this bill were to pass they would be seen as child abusers and they would potentially face face penalties as a result of it. That's reporter Sam Schmidt. She covers gender and family issues for the post and she says that these bills are the culmination of years of political scrutiny over the rights of transgender kids. In 2019, you started seeing across the country a lot of Republicans talking about trans kids. And and there was misinformation that was spreading, implying that young kids, as young as seven years old, were going through medical treatments and were going through, in some cases, surgeries. You know, they would use words like mutilation, that kids were having these, you know, genital surgeries as young as seven years old, which is not true. But this started kind of becoming a real concern for uh, Republican state lawmakers. And you started to see state by state lawmakers introducing bills that said, you know, minors are not allowed to go under gender affirming surgery. But they also said, in some cases, they criminalize doctors and even parents who allow a minor to access puberty blockers and hormone treatments. Mm-hmm. So they're not just banning surgeries. They're they're banning many other types of gender-affirming care and medications. Sam wanted to hear from someone at the cross-section of this debate. And that is how she got in touch with Chloe Clark. Alexa, play banana bread. Oh, God. 
It's another song by them. Banana bread by Pete. Okay, no, I was thinking of banana pancakes. That's what I was thinking. No, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Chloe Clark is a 15-year-old girl, a sophomore in high school in St. Louis, Missouri. I am the type of artist who will spend like 20 hours working on an eye. (laughs) When I first met her, she was a freshman. She was 14 years old and she is super smart. She's obsessed with Broadway musicals. She's really good at computer coding. She loves talking to her friends on Discord and playing video games and chess. And she's also transgender. She came out to her parents as trans when she was 13. And when I met her, she was a few months into a number of of aspects of her transition, including some medications to align her body to her gender identity. And she'd also been taking speech therapy sessions to try to work on making her voice sound more authentic to how she feels and to help her be perceived as female by her friends and by her classmates and teachers. Sam says that Chloe Clark's experience mirrors that of a lot of trans kids right now. She spoke with producer Rennie Svernovsky. Could you tell me a bit about what growing up was like for Chloe? So everyone comes out at a different time. There's no clear path. And some people know they're trans when they're really young, but some people don't find out till they're older. And for Chloe, she always felt like something was wrong with her body, but she didn't really have a word for it. She didn't know exactly what it was until she went through puberty. So I don't, I really don't know how to explain it. It was like something that just was kind of always there. I would like feel uncomfortable around certain pronouns and stuff. I never said anything about it. But, yeah. Were there ever times when you felt like any of that dysphoria before you knew how to knew yeah. it was? Yeah, I had some dys... Yeah, I had dysphoria uh, even before, like, puberty hit in some ways. Uh, I think I had some, like... I had more physical dysphoria back then and a little bit of mental, but not as much emotional dysphoria. And that was when she started just realizing that all these changes were happening to her body that she wasn't comfortable with. It felt like there was something wrong with me, like... Her voice was dropping, she started having facial hair, she was growing taller, and you could just tell how it was impacting her well-being. She became depressed and withdrawn, Mm. her grades plunged, she had very few friends and struggled to get out of bed in the morning. And she started realizing that it really had to do with with her gender identity. And she actually told me a story about how right before eighth grade, she was at a theater camp and she uh, was cast in a female role. And stepping onto that stage in a purple dress and a red, red wig, she really realized this was when she felt most comfortable. This is where she felt most like herself. I essentially, like... It felt right. It felt comfortable with me. And then, like, I knew what trans was at that point. So, like, I did research. I watched all the videos that are, like, how to tell if you're trans and stuff. She started looking up what it meant to be trans, what it would be like to come out to her parents as transgender. But I remember how, you know, sort of, agitated she was and just really wanting to sort of sink in and be just rock solid you know like okay we got this and uh, and her parents were 
actually really accepting. It didn't surprise me because, you know, we'd kind of been dancing around the edges of this. But I think it also, I think um, at the time, I mean, I did what I, I did, right? I just sort of sank in. I was like, okay. You know, like, okay, mm-hmm. we love you and we'll figure out what next. You know, what do you want? It took Chloe a year to finally tell them. And when she did, it was a slow process of taking her to a transgender clinic at Washington University Hospital and slowly starting to use her name and her pronouns. And it was it was a a slow build up to ultimately her diagnosis with gender dysphoria and what followed, uh, which were a couple different medications that she's on now. And could you tell me more about those medications? Yeah. So not all trans kids are on medications and it kind of depends where they're at in their, you know, in their own life, if they've gone through puberty or not. That kind of is is really important in deciding what path to take for a trans kid. Mm-hmm. So normally the first step of medication for transgender kids would be to take puberty blockers, which would pause some of those changes and and would kind of just put a, a halt on natural puberty until you decide what you want to do next. And for Chloe, since she came out and first realized she was trans while she was going through puberty, at that point, a lot of these changes were already happening to her body. Right. So she started on basically a combination of puberty blockers and estrogen. And that estrogen would lead to some more permanent changes in her body and would, would start to help others perceive her as female. And and it was it was an agonizing decision for her parents because they really were scared. They 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 were okay with the puberty blockers because they knew it wasn't permanent, but the the estrogen was a big deal. And it would create some questions about whether she would be able to conceive kids if it would affect her fertility someday like they don't know long term the impact of these hormones on executive function Mm. you know impact on some other things but you know that's a little scary to me Mm -hmm. um and but i have to again cycle through okay um chloe said and of course she's 14 so she's like you know if this shortens my life so be it i'm happy Hmm. This is who I want to be. And And they did not make the decision lightly. It took them a long time and lots of research. But the the more they they read up on the subject, they saw these studies showing just the really high rates of suicide in the trans community for for kids that don't get access to gender-affirming care. And all I wanted in that moment was to just, like, one, make sure she was okay, right? Like, Mm -hmm. to stay angry. Because I, I know that, you know, there is a much higher incident in the trans community mm-hmm. of uh, suicide, of all these things, right? That I, what I wanted to do was to stay as uh, sort of grounded. Mm-hmm. Like, and they decided, and, and really Chloe decided, uh, that this was what was necessary for her. And they started the estrogen treatments, and they really saw it making a big difference and an improvement in her day-to-day life. And as they were navigating these changes and making these decisions, what was the backdrop for all of that politically and legally? You mentioned that the Clarks live in Missouri. This was why I first reached out to Chloe to begin with, because in early 2020, lawmakers across the country had started introducing these bills that would restrict access to transgender treatments for specifically medical treatments for transgender youth, minors under the age of 18. Now, 
17, at least 17 states have introduced bills that would restrict these medications. And beyond just medications, transgender youth have become this political flashpoint where you're seeing nearly half of the states in the country uh, introducing bills that would ban transgender girls from participating in sports that align with their gender identity. Right. You're seeing bills about access to changes on their birth certificates, a ton of different anti-trans bills that would specifically impact young people in many cases. And you're also seeing this very interesting kind of these two worlds where the Biden administration has passed a number of uh, executive orders mm-hmm. and and other guidelines to really expand protections for LGBTQ people across the board. Today, the House will take up and pass for the second time the Equality Act, H.R. 5. And we are really excited to have the uh, incredible support of President Biden and his commitment to make the Equality Act the law of the land. And so you're seeing both at the federal level, these massive wins for the trans community, but then at the state level, this huge backlash. And I thought this was the perfect time to go back to Chloe's story because Chloe has been really at the center of this and would be an example of of this trans kid who who doesn't have a voice in this whole process as politicians are are essentially debating her right to exist and she's just trying to get through her day-to-day life which has gotten increasingly difficult in the pandemic and how has the pandemic changed Chloe's life and i don't know affected the progress that she and her parents say she's made since she came out She has had a really hard time with online classes. From the beginning of the pandemic, her school closed and all of her classes went online on Microsoft Teams. And even though they've now moved to a hybrid model, she, for the entire school year, really up until now, she has been in remote classes still. And what's so challenging for her is that nobody in the classes ever turns on a video camera. So the only thing you see or you hear on this this call is you, you see someone's name and you hear their voice. And for her, that's really distressing because she's very self-conscious about her voice. It's one of the things about her that bothers her the most, that makes her the most uncomfortable. She hates listening to the sound of her voice. And now, you know, she she feels like that's what she's been reduced to. And she's constantly worried that they're going to misgender her, that they're going to think she's somebody else mm. because her voice is a lot deeper than the girls in her class. And and she constantly is is anxious about that. And so as a result of that, she doesn't end up talking much. And it's so striking to see because when I met Chloe I saw, I went to St. Louis and I spent time with her family and I followed her in her classes before the pandemic and, you know, hung out with her after school when she was walking around with her friends and taking photos for Instagram. And she was so confident and she seemed really happy and really, she was really thriving. She was constantly asking for her teachers for more challenges Mm -hmm. in class. I mean, she would sit at the front of the classroom in some cases and and you could see how these medications and her coming out process had really just helped her come into her own. Her her mother described it as just seeing her blossom. And then seeing her now a year later and how so much of that progress has gone away, it, it's just really sad because I think she's got so much potential that she feels she's not meeting right now. And being reduced to a voice with this online schooling, that's 
I imagine that's not working. Yeah. And and for me, what was powerful about that was that it kind of captures what so many trans kids feel right now is that they don't have a voice in this debate mm-hmm. and they're they're struggling in many cases just to get through their day to day. And meanwhile, they're the subject of this national conversation, you know, where these politicians who don't know them are trying to decide what's best for them. And so I think her story captures what so many teenagers are dealing with in general with the struggles of the pandemic, but just those added layers and and the added anxiety of being a trans kid in the middle of it. She has now an implant for some of her medications, but she is worried that if this bill passes, that could jeopardize her uh, estrogen treatment and her prescription. So, I mean, her mom is is very worried. You know, she's even said to me, what if we have to move out of the state to get Chloe's medications? Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's so many different kind of looming threats, but she's trying, you know, day by day. And the biggest thing for me is that she's willing, you know, Chloe, Chloe wants to have a voice in this. Chloe wants to be a part of this conversation and wants to be heard. And I, I, to me, that's, that's a statement in and of itself. Sam Schmidt covers gender and family issues for The Post. Renee Svernovsky is a producer for Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was mixed by Rena Flores. Alexis Dia will be in the host chair tomorrow, and I will be back on Thursday. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 